0: You're listening to Locally Sourced Science, your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community.
1: Welcome to the December 24th, 2019 edition of Locally Sourced Science. I'm Esther Rakusin. I hope that the show finds you enjoying a warm and relaxing evening, perhaps next to a fire or a warming air source heat pump. It is the locally sourced science tradition to end the calendar year with our best of edition. Tonight's show will feature some of our contributors' favorite segments from the last year. In fact, one of my favorite shows was our special live St. Patrick's Day show. Locally Sourced Science contributor Liz Mahood recorded a piece on the harp for our show, and you can hear her playing in the background. So let's get started. In some of our Locally Sourced Science shows, we present a segment on science in schools. Early in 2019, contributor Candace Limper interviewed attendees at the launch of a high school outreach program called Hope Saturday. Here she is.
2: Hi everybody, my name is Candace Limper, and today I'm interviewing a few people at the launch of a high school outreach program called Hope Saturday. And to start, I'm going to be interviewing Joseph Holland, the visionary behind the program. Mr. Holland, can you explain who is all here?
3: Both from the vet school and from other schools at Cornell University. And then we did get a few students from Ithaca High School who have come up to participate with us. and. We've been able to talk about vision, their view of the future, do a tour of the Cornell Vet School, and then we're going to do some fun activities this afternoon on, on campus. This has been really great.
2: What inspired you to do this?
3: I wanted to see Cornell and the Ithaca community work together in a way to make a difference in the lives of young people. And that was what really inspired me to have this vision of a collaboration to see what could happen to make more of a difference.
2: What would you like to see from this program?
3: My vision for Hope Saturday is to have young people really inspired to be the best that they can possibly be. And then if it can happen well here with Cornell and the Ithaca community, I'd really like to see this become a model so that it can help with other colleges and communities across the country so more people can be helped and uplifted.
2: What advice do you have for people who want to start this other places?
3: You know, in order to get a program like this going, you really have to be committed to your community, particularly to the young people. And we'll have a model here to draw from and replicate. But it really starts with your commitment to see the young people in your community do the best that they can possibly be due. And if you have that commitment, then you're ready to go. I'm really hoping that Hope Saturday will catch on so more people can live to be their best and, you know, make this world a better place.
2: After talking with Joseph Holland, I wanted to ask the student volunteers what motivated them to volunteer their time.
4: My motivation is to expose kids to things that they don't see outside of high school. I knew that I liked animals since I was very young, and I think, aside from the fact that I was like, oh, I like animals, a lot of people told me, like, you should be a veterinarian or you're going to be a veterinarian when you grow up, and that that like seed was planted in my head when I was very young, but how I was going to achieve that was just kind of unimaginable in my brain. We didn't even know what vet schools were around, what it takes to get into a vet school. The fact that, you know, I was going to be doing like a science intensive program in college, which I didn't get a good solid foundation in science when I was in high school. So you can imagine when you go to one of the best universities in the world into a biology program, a 500 student lecture hall learning Gen Chem, and my foundation was zero. So that's very challenging to go into, also being a first-generation college student, dealing with just being far away from home and your family not understanding what it's like to be in school, and not understanding what you're going through as far as trying to achieve something that feels like it's unachievable. So even just getting through college in general was a big challenge for me, and so I think that the more these kids are exposed to things like veterinary medicine or research, Also, it's just great to be part of the first one because we're going to be able to give feedback about how to make it better. And and also, I hope that Joe said that it can be spread to other schools as well. So I think that even just whoever is here attending can take it wherever they go. You know, if you end up being a professor at such a school, you introduce it there. If you end up being a veterinarian in Minnesota, you can have that kind of program where students can come to your hospital. So I think everyone should do it. After talking with a vet student volunteer, I spoke with
5: Luvell Brown. Yeah, I'm the nice. superintendent of schools here in Ithaca.
2: And so what do you think of Hope Saturday?
5: Oh, it's an awesome opportunity for our young people to see something new. Um, our school district is only a few miles away from Cornell University, but too often we aren't getting our young people up here. So to get our young people on campus, to be around this kind of intellectual capacity, to see new things they haven't seen before, to interact with other students is outstanding. So It's a great opportunity for us.
2: How did you initially get involved?
5: Uh, Joe Holland. Joe Holland uh, approached us with the idea. Mm -hmm. He had done something similar in another place, Um, and, you know, he's a pretty influential um, individual. So his connection to our school district, talked to some board members, and next thing you know, we're we're doing this on a Saturday. Awesome. Yeah.
2: So are you guys planning on doing this more often? Yeah, this is the
5: first of what we hope to be many opportunities for Hope Saturday to, to go forward. Yeah. Is it
2: only at Cornell, or is it other? Is no, that this one?
5: is the only place we've um, attempted something like this. So um, it's at Cornell now, but we're open to uh, expanding it to other universities and, and colleges as well.
2: That wraps up my interviews from Hope Saturday. I am Kendra Limper, and I'm signing off.
1: Here's Patricia Waldron presenting one of her favorite segments from the last year.
2: Hello, locally sourced science listeners. This is Patricia Waldron. I did a lot of fascinating interviews for our show this year, but I think my favorite was with Dr. Robin Radcliffe, a senior lecturer at the Cornell University College of Veterinary Medicine. Usually, he studies novel approaches to conserving endangered species like Java and rhinos, but he also teaches a honeybee health course for veterinary students. Honeybees are considered to be livestock animals, just like cows and chickens, and veterinarians can work with beekeepers to help keep their hives healthy. Here's a short segment from our interview. So how did veterinarians get into the business of helping bees?
0: Well, in North America, they are required now by law to work with beekeepers whenever uh, antibiotics are prescribed. And that's part of a new regulation that not just includes honeybees, but all livestock. And the the focus of this is to prevent um, overuse or misuse of antibiotics and particularly antibiotic resistance developing. What kind of services can veterinarians offer to beekeepers? The obvious one is when beekeepers call and they want to treat a colony. Usually um, they're treating for fowl brood. There's two kinds of fowl brood, American fowl brood and European fowl brood. And it's a bacterial pathogen that infects the, the brood or the growing larva of the honeybees. But I think the value of a veterinarian to beekeepers is much more than as a prescriber of medicines or as a pharmacist, I think the real value for veterinarians is um, the problem-solving approach that they bring to to health, and in, in particular, preventative health. Um, so we can diagnose and treat, but I think preventative health is something that honeybees increasingly need because one of the lessons that we've learned in the last decade is that these increasingly common episodes of colony collapse or winter losses of honeybees which are um, at at record levels now more than 50 percent of colonies are not surviving the winter They, they seem to be multifactorial there's many different causes that are are leading to these honeybee declines some of them are pathogens some of them are nutrition some of them are perhaps pesticide related so having a problem solving approach where you can be one part of a team together with the beekeeper I think is a really good thing. And it's going to take some time to develop those relationships. But I think in the long run, honeybees and honey the health of honeybees will be benefited by having this relationship.
6: So you almost have to be like bee detectives to figure out what's
2: affecting the hive.
0: I like that. I think that's a good analogy.
2: How is working with bees different from working with other types of livestock on farms?
0: I think one of the biggest things that I've recognized in, in my studies of honeybee health is that the problems that we're seeing in managed honeybees is very different than um, what we're seeing in the wild. So most of the problems that managed honeybees have, in other words, the honeybees that are kept in, in hives by both backyard beekeepers and commercial beekeepers, they're problems of management. One of the things that Dr. Seeley has spent the last part of his career studying is the health, um, the health of wild honeybees compared to the health of domestic honeybees. And there's some very significant differences and some real lessons that we can learn from studying wild bees. Just some common ones that are maybe people wouldn't even think of is the size of the nest cavity is very different in a honeybee colony in a hive compared to a bee tree. It's much larger. Um, and that has implications because the larger the colony the more brood they have. And many of these diseases, especially the mites, they reproduce in the brood. So more brood, more mites. And that's one of the major causes of colony collapses. The mites not only suck the blood or the hemolymph of an adult bee, which is analogous to our blood, but they also transmit a lot of viruses when they do that. um, And that leads to collapse of the colonies. Another one is swarming. Beekeepers um, prevent swarming through a number of mechanisms because they don't want to lose half their bees but swarming is a normal part of a wild honeybee colony's reproduction so by suppressing swarming we may be Im- impacting their genetics um, and we also are it's another way that mites uh, are controlled in wild populations because whenever the queen leaves with half her brood um, a large portion of mites leave with them and the brood cycle is broken in other words the queen is not there to lay eggs and that is where the the mites reproduce. In beekeeping situations, we space our hives very closely together. So there's a lot of um, transfer of bees from hive to hive through robbing, which is where bees from a healthy colony go in and steal honey, and also diseases from a weaker hive. There's bee drift where bees can actually go into the wrong hive because they're so close together. We don't have that problem in wild honeybees because Bee trees are not spaced closely together. They're usually about a kilometer apart, actually. And there's a variety of other things that we're learning about wild honeybees that are different from how we manage them in captivity. And I think we could really learn a lot from evaluating you know, what bees do in nature because that's, that's kind of the normal. And one of the things we learn in veterinary school from the very first part of our curriculum is learn the normal first. So before we study disease, we learn what normal tissues look like. And um, I think the same could be applied to honeybee Health.
1: Contributor Nick Sagerson talked about a special program called Skype a Scientist.
6: Scientists aren't defined only by their research articles or the talks they give at conferences. For many scientists, the drive to give back to the community is powerful and can take many forms. I recently spoke with Morgan Carter, a PhD student in plant pathology and plant microbiology at Cornell, about her experience with the Skype a Scientist program. This program began two years ago, and in that time, more than 2,000 scientists from all over the world have spoken with students who may be future scientists themselves. Morgan will explain in more detail how the Skype a Scientist program makes science more accessible to classrooms, and how the experience has helped her. I was wondering if you could just briefly introduce what Skype a Scientist is, so what what do you do as the scientist in this?
7: Yeah, so Skype a Scientist is a program that was started two years ago uh, by Sarah McAnulty, who's a grad student in Connecticut, and she wanted to make sure that people had a better idea of what scientists looked like and acted like, and that we were a range of people from different backgrounds and with different interests. And so the idea is to connect um, scientists of all different kinds of fields and backgrounds to classrooms that maybe they couldn't get connected with otherwise. So we're trying to make it so you don't have to walk out the door and go actually into a classroom, but that you can connect to somebody in a completely different state and show them like what you're working on and what you're excited about and what your life is like. So it's kind of two-part in that you're talking about what you do as a scientist and why you chose that route and what excites you and um, what your day-to-day life is like. And then you can also talk about just the field you study. And so some of the kids will ask questions about um, the specific science that you're actually interested in. So you can get a huge range of questions from why did you decide to go get a PhD to why is the sky blue?
6: Where did you actually first hear about the Skype a Scientist program?
7: I first heard about it on Twitter um, it just is out there and there's they have a Twitter account uh, Skype scientist and they, they have a hashtag and So I kind of noticed it on there and I was like, oh, I don't know, what am I gonna talk about? And then I actually met the founder over the summer when I was at a conference and I was talking to her about it and I was like, well, I mean, people don't really care that much about plants, which is what I work on, so you probably don't even get that many requests for plant biology. And she was like, no, we really do and we need more people. And I was like, great, cool. So I signed up this time and I was really excited to get the matches when they came in.
6: For more information about the Skype a Scientist program, visit their website at Skypascientist.com or on Twitter, where their handle is at Skype Scientist. For Locally Sourced Science and WRFI, I'm Nick Sagerson.
1: Do you have a science event coming up? Let us know by tweeting at us at FLX Science Radio. Also, we are always looking for new members of our team. Write to us at science.com at gmail.com. As Locally Sourced Science is a radio show, we try to capture cool sound effects to present science in a vivid way. Here is Mark Sharvari interviewing scientist Dr. Jennifer Seavey at Shoals Marine Laboratory. So let me set the scene here just for the ambience. So we are on Appoldore Island, and Shaw's merry Laboratory is located here. And at Shaw's merry Laboratory, there's a vibrant scene of scientists, undergraduate researchers, undergraduate students who are taking courses, professors who are teaching these courses, and of course the fantastic staff who runs the island. The island is administered by Cornell University and the University of New Hampshire.
8: So we're at Scholes Marine Laboratory, which is located on Appledore Island, which is in Kittery, Maine. We're six miles out to sea from Rye, New Hampshire. And my name is Dr. Jennifer Seavey, and I'm the John M. Kingsbury Executive Director for the lab. Arctic terns have actually one of the longest migration of any animal on earth and they'll go from the Arctic to the Antarctic. This there's literally two to four pairs of Arctic terns in any given year on White and Seavy Island. That's the furthest south that they breed. Most of them are way north of here. Yeah. So the White and Seavy Island Turn Project has been ongoing from since nineteen 19- 97 when New Hampshire Audubon and New Hampshire Fish and Game got together and restored a turn colony that was historically in the Isles of Shoals. And it was a really great test of uh, Steve Kress, Dr. Steve Kress, who's affiliated with Cornell's Lab of Ornithology. He developed methods for restoring uh, seabird colonies using uh, puffins, in his case. But he developed the methodology around using decoys and playing songs, and so that's what was employed to start this colony. And Scholes was involved from the very beginning to support that research in many, many different aspects. But when I got here, I was looking for my research project, and at that time, the contract for monitoring the colony that the state of New Hampshire Fish and Game offers was up, and so I applied. They restored it. They put it there in the first place, so they have that interest, plus there's federal and state protection, so they have that interest for why they want to maintain and protect this colony.
1: At the end of March of this year, we had a special Women in Science show for Women's History Month. Here is Lizma Hood introducing her favorite segment from that show.
6: Hello, Locally sourced Science listeners. I'm Liz Mahood, and for this Best of 2019 show, I've chosen Kitty Gifford's outline of the life of Donna Strickland as my favorite short segment. I think this segment is noteworthy for two reasons. Not only does it review the life of a Nobel laureate, showing that they really are just like you and me, but it also highlights one of the three women who hold Nobel Prizes in Physics.
2: Now, not everyone thinks physics is fun, but I do. I think experimental physics is especially fun because not only do you get to solve puzzles about the universe or here on Earth, there are really cool toys in the lab. In my case, I get to play with high-intensity lasers that can do magical things, like take one color of laser light and turn it into a rainbow of colors, Just one of the amazing things we get to see in our laser labs. That was Donna Strickland. She made headlines in October 2018 for becoming only the third woman to win a Nobel Prize for physics for her work with high-intensity laser pulses that smack the electrons right off the atoms. That is to say, the shortest, most intense laser pulses ever created. She is the first woman to win the Physics Nobel Prize since Maria Goeppert Mayer 56 years ago, and Marie Curie is the only other female Physics Nobel laureate. Strickland is also the first woman laureate in Rochester, New York's history. Upon hearing the news, Strickland said, i thought there might have been more but i couldn't think obviously we need to celebrate women physicists because we're out there hopefully it will start to move forward at a faster rate i'm honored to be one of those women remarkably strickland was recognized for work she did as a graduate student and she outlined the technique in her first research paper there, at the University of Rochester, along with Gerard Moreau, they developed the technique to amplify the intensity of short laser pulses without destroying the amplifying medium, which was a severe limitation at the time. Their technique, named chirp pulse amplification, is now used in laser machining and enables doctors to perform millions of corrective laser eye surgeries every year.
1: In November, contributor Cecil barnett neefs interviewed former locally-sourced science contributor Gina Mason about her
9: research. As you may or may not know, our show is entirely produced by volunteers, and they range from anywhere from graduate students, scientists, undergrads, former researchers, current researchers, science writers, postdoctoral fellows, and so on, all across the board. We enjoy checking in with our former volunteers from time to time and see what they got up to. Right now, we have our former volunteer on the phone, Dr. Gina Mason. She is a postdoctoral fellow in developmental uh, psychology at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Welcome back to the show, I guess I should say.
10: I'm excited to be back. I love this show, and I've been listening to it um, from time to time when I've I've found the time (laughs) uh, since I've been away.
9: Is there something that you really took away from working on LSS, you know, your key favorite moment?
10: So there's a lot that I feel like I could say about uh, my time with LSS and and what I gathered from it. First, I, I would like to say that it offered me as a graduate student a platform to develop my own science communication skills, um, because I think that as scientists and as students in particular that are just learning how to communicate science, we can get caught up in a lot of details. Um, so it really helps me to develop the ability to hone in on the main messages of a study or area of research. And to communicate complex information in a way that is accessible to everyone, um, including folks who don't specialize in a certain area of research. Um, I also know that when I interviewed individuals, I didn't necessarily specialize in the area that I was interviewing for, and that was really helpful for me, um, just to learn how how to communicate that. Um, it was also really nice to learn about more about all of the amazing science and community science events happening in the Finger Lakes region. Um, because also as a graduate student, I think you can get very caught up in your own research and isolated. And getting involved in locally sourced science really encouraged me to get out more and explore all of the science resources and organizations in the Finger Lakes. And it also allowed me to meet and interact with some amazing people and not just the people that we featured on the show, but also um, my fellow volunteers like you guys. Um, so (laughs) yeah, I really, I loved every moment of volunteering with locally source science and I can't emphasize, um, or, or encourage, um, graduate, other graduate students or, or other community members enough to, to volunteer or provide some time. Or if you can't volunteer your time to, to donate um, to WRFI and keep programs like Global Source Science on the radio.
9: Can we talk about your current research?
10: Sure, yeah. Um, So my research as a graduate student at Cornell was focused on how social interactions support learning and attention in infants. And what I'm doing now is I'm looking at how other environmental factors, including sleep and sleep patterns in infants. Um, allow for better memory consolidation um, and learning, and I'm looking at it in at particular moments in development that are important for sleep transitions. So, starting around six months, uh, infants, at least human infants, um, they begin to taper their nap bouts, so their their daytime sleep bouts to around two naps per day. Whereas previously, when infants are first born, like any parent will tell you, they're sleeping a lot. So they're sleeping a lot throughout the day, and they're sleeping a lot at night. Um, but around six months and onward, they are starting to transition and get more regular in their, in their sleep bouts um, in terms of taking just, just two naps per day. Um, and so what my current research is focused on is how infants two naps per day, um, the one that occurs in the morning and one that occurs in the afternoon, how they dip, differ in their depth and staging. Um, So by depth and staging, I mean um, whether they get into really deep sleep or whether they get into um, like just light sleep in their in their daytime sleep outs and whether the morning and afternoon naps differ in how they help infants remember events that they learned before
9: they nap. You you mentioned um, the phrase memory consolidation at the beginning of this. Can you just unpack that? Because I'm personally speaking as a food scientist. This is a little left field for me.
10: Um, So memory consolidation is is just um, solidifying the memory and and being able to store it in long-term memory. So when you initially experience something, it's not in long-term memory yet. And we think that a a big body of research um, has suggested that sleep in in adults and in young children helps memories get into long-term memory. And it helps us be able to extract information from similar memories and um, build kind of like categories and build broader concepts from from the um, discrete events that happen in our daily lives.
9: So so to sort of put it simply we, we we, you know, go to sleep, brain is doing a little bit less functional stuff as far as we're considered from the outside observer, but behind the scenes, there's a lot of uh, index, indexing going along to, you know, figure out what happened, what's what, and so forth.
10: Yes, yes, that's, that's a great way to explain it. Um, and and what's so interesting is that a lot of people think because you're asleep that your brain is also, you know, taking a rest, but it's really not. Like, your brain, while you're sleeping, is doing all sorts of crazy, amazing things. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, it's a great way to 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 paraphrase. Um,
9: What actually got you into sleep science?
10: As an undergraduate, before graduate school, I was conducting some research on sleep apnea in uh, special populations. So in particular, I was studying sleep apnea in Down syndrome and how that relates to differences in learning and memory. And I think that sleep is just this ubiquitous, Occurrence across the animal kingdom, um, and it's it's one of many what what you, we could call environmental factors that influence how our brains are working and how our bodies are developing. And so, um, when I was thinking about what to do after um, my graduate work, I was interested in going back to sleep for a bit. And also, another thing from a practical perspective um, is as a postdoc, you're supposed to be developing new technical skills. And studying sleep is allowing me to develop skills in um, EEG analysis, which is basically being able to analyze um, brain waves uh, using special tech, special equipment um, in humans. And it also is giving me more techniques in um, analyzing, like, physical activity and movement, and so like it, it's really a great opportunity in many ways um, from a technical perspective and from a conceptual perspective.
1: You've been listening to Locally Sourced Science. I'm Esther Rakusin, and I've produced today's show. To conclude this final show of 2019, I want to express my thanks to all of the Locally Sourced Science contributors from this year. Nick Sagerson, Daniel Colbin, Candice Limper, Luisa Torres, Mark Charvari, Kitty Gifford, Cecil barnett Neefs, Patricia Waldron, Liz Mahood, and Megan McElroy. I really enjoyed creating Science Radio together with you all. As always, we thank Joe Lewis and Cese Giannotti for our theme music, and Blue Dot Sessions for their music. Don't forget that you can go to our website at locallysourcedscience.com for podcast links and our show archive. There you can also subscribe to new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast apps. And send us questions and suggestions at locallysourcedscience@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Happy New Year and science out.